Hello, and thanks for joining us again on The Hub. My name is Mitch Itter, and I'm the Corporate Affairs Officer here at Rhodes Australia. This edition of the podcast is the first in a series of five, which will be released over the coming months following RA's Transport Summit held in Sydney earlier this year. As part of RA's Transport Summit, five panel discussions were held, accompanied by real-time audience questions on some of the most pressing challenges and opportunities facing the transport industry. We are excited to share snippets of these informative discussions with leaders in their respective fields bouncing ideas off one another, sharing innovative solutions and highlighting the opportunities that exist across the transport sector. In this episode, we'll bring you some of the perspectives that were shared in the first of these panel discussions, Convergence, How Decarbonisation Drives Transport Productivity. RA's transport reform stream recognises the need for transformational, regulatory and technological reform to continue to drive value from Australian roads and the integrated transport network. RA would like to thank Arup for sponsoring this discussion, moderated by Alex Borg, Principal and Highways Leader Australasia at Arup, who opened the panel discussion reflecting on the multifaceted challenge that is decarbonisation and introduced the panel speakers. So I guess... Just reflecting on where things are at now and and has been for a while is, I guess as a road-based transport business leader, I'm finding myself connecting and engaging with these different parts of the businesses, whether it's the energy transition, whether it's the future mobility piece, the technology and the data uh, representatives more often than in the traditional days would have been, you know, predominantly focused around planning and design. And I think that is reinforcing the topic we've got at hand today. And I guess we're also recognising that the responsibility of the transport business is no longer just about the movement of people and goods, but we've got this burning platform around decarbonisation that I think from what I'm seeing and hearing, we're all on it and we're all doing our best to, to challenge that. The interplay between the energy transition, mobility choice, the technology piece and the data is mission critical. And as I sort of pointed out, it's not just a conversation between planners and designers anymore. It is a really wide conversation and it's really forcing us to engage and plan and design and make decisions at that system level, which is the topic at hand. Again, as Simon pointed out, the population growth we've got in our urban centres, in our cities, is really exacerbating the challenge at hand. But of course, we've got this, and particularly in in Australia, we've got this two sides of the coin where we've got growing urban areas, but we have a vast regional presence as well. So there's a conversation to be had around what does the decarbonisation war look like in our urban areas? What does it look like in our regional towns? And how do we make sure that we provide an equitable transition for all? We've got three amazing guests to, to bring up on stage at the moment. We have Celia Troseth, Vice President, Asia Pacific and GM for Australia of Q3 ASA. Simon Swan, Global Solutions Director, New Mobility Arcadis. And we've got Rita Excel, Head of Transport, um, ANZ, Amazon Web Services, AWS. With the release of the National Electric Vehicle Strategy less than 10 days before RA's Transport Summit, the role of low emission and electric vehicles in the road to decarbonisation was front of mind for attendees, alongside the infrastructure investment required to support EV uptake and the effective utilisation of data. So one of the things that has happened in Europe has been national charge point 
databases and registry, for example. In the UK, there's a national charge point register where you have to, if you're a charge point operator, you need to provide the details into this database. So other technology providers can then use that data to create other applications uh, to help drivers identify where charge points are, for example. There's different versions of the same thing across Europe. Uh, in the Netherlands, there's one that also identifies exactly the current status uh, of that charge point, for example. We don't have that in, in the UK, but that um, data availability needs to be available to, to everyone, ideally, uh, to help them understand and give them the confidence when they're driving to a particular place. And if they do have an electric vehicle, that they know that there is a charger there and that it's online and then it's accessible. So um, the availability of the, this data is really important for understanding exactly how you're going to move from A to B. One of the uh, important things to remember on the EV side of things and the infrastructure and creating an equitable uh, network, if you leave it just to the markets to create the infrastructure, then there's going to be holes in that network as well. So uh, government funding, federal funding is absolutely vital and it'll absolutely play a, a huge part in creating an equitable network. The, the data is really going to underpin the consumer confidence around any electric vehicle, any uh, low and zero emission vehicle. It's really important that we get the right data. You know, Amazon, AWS, we are a huge consumer-centric organisation and data really uh, underpins it and having good data that's reliable is really critical to any of this so I think we just need to, you know, going back to using the data that's currently available to understand where we can actually make the biggest change. And, and it's not about leaving regional areas behind, but if, if we use the premise that we have to solve it for everybody straight away before we do anything, we'll, we'll never move forward. Simon, you showed some really good examples of, and I think you made the point around the, you know, the war will be won in our cities, which makes perfect sense. But of course, we can't, we can't ignore, ignore the, that other 95% of our country, which is all in, in peri-urban, regional, rural type centres. What does that look like from a data perspective? Well, from a, from a data perspective, if, if you've got a national charge point register, for example, then um, that, that data should be available whether you're in the city or, or outside of the city. But from an infrastructure perspective, it's really important as well because you need to give people the confidence that they can get from A to B in rural areas. So you need to have the infrastructure installed and it needs to be of the right type of infrastructure and it needs to be visible and accessible and well-designed to give people that confidence confidence that they can travel in more rural areas. The battle for net zero will be won in cities with 80% of people living in cities. Mm. I think the average distance that people drive, uh, Australians drive is 36 kilometres a day, something like that. Again, arming people with that data and that knowledge that actually you can drive an EV, you might every now and again need to hire a petrol car to get to areas that are in the middle of greater further distances and that sort of thing. And EVs will not be for everyone all the time. Mm -hmm. no, there will be petrol stations for a significant period of time. The data is really important, but the infrastructure and having that infrastructure in place, not only inside the cities, but also in rural areas as well, will give people the confidence that they can travel further over time. Celia and Rita discussed how Australia's transport decarbonisation 
presents challenges unique to our national context, but that lessons can be learned from innovative solutions being developed across the world. I want to talk a little bit about a truck trial, autonomous truck trial that is happening in Europe at the moment. It's called the Modi Project. It's really aiming to pave the way for mass adoption of automated freight vehicles done through demonstrations of various use cases in various different countries and solving some of the barriers that we face today around automated transport, automated logistics and supply chain. So the project is funded by the European Commission and involves 34 different partners from eight different countries. And all the public roads administrations and research organizations are part of this project as well. So there are three different truck companies. There's Volvo from Sweden, there's Duff from Netherlands, and there's a new player in the market called Einride. And you might have seen this truck around. It looks like a really futuristic truck with no driver cabin. So they're actually entering this market now with level four autonomous driving. What does level four mean? It means there's no driver in the truck, but the truck is operated um, remotely. So if the truck encounters problems that they can't solve on their own, an operator can help them progress along the way if there is an issue. So the idea for this project is to look at the full supply chain in Europe. So from the main harbour, which are in Rotterdam uh, and in Hamburg. So most of the goods that come to Europe from Asia, for example, come through these harbours. Uh, so they're looking at the obstacles along the route. For example, if a truck comes to a harbour, they have lots of paper. They wave in front of them around, you know, stamping this and stamping that. This is what it is uh, for custom declarations. So it's about automating every single step on the journey from when the goods come to Europe, how they are uh, loaded onto the truck automatically and how they are sent from, uh, and this, this trial particularly, from Netherlands all the way up through Norway. So it's a really interesting project where we look at how decarbonization can improve uh, productivity and with some really good use cases as well. There's a shortage of truck drivers globally. So we're really looking at how can we solve that problem with autonomy and electrify the chain at the same time. The sea drone project as well also falls part of Modi. So a company in Norway, which are delivering food, so the biggest food supply chain, they normally drive trucks along the Oslo Fjord, which takes hours. But now they have developed sea drones, which is, looks like a, a car ferry, really. And these are electric, and you can fit 16 containers on this sea drone automatically and drive it straight across the fjord and offload it. And also they dock automatically as well. They have huge suction cups on the sea drone, so it docks automatically. So this company really want to dramatically reduce their um, CO2 emissions. And they also want to take control of their emissions from, from the whole value chain. So some good examples there of, um, of what's happening in Europe. RA went on a North America study tour and we went to Detroit and had the presentations from uh, M-City and the Michigan Department of Transport. And they showed us a project that they're doing where they have a, a, a road, uh, which is electric. So you can drive with your electric vehicle and get charged, charge your car as you drive along the road. 
So that's also, you know, an option for the future. I'd sort of like to challenge the premise that we're going to own our own, our, our own car, yep. um, which to your point about, you know, the, the future of mobility. And, and we're really at an exciting time at the cusp of such a transformation in um, transport planning. And uh, what I'd challenge, encourage you is if you're going to be making bold uh, suggestions to your um, clients, whether it's a developer or it's a government, is really to, you know, to dig deep and look at case studies and, and go on studies tours so you experience and you see it for yourself. Close collaboration between industry and government was highlighted by Rita and Celia as essential to facilitating the decarbonisation process and developing sustainable solutions. You need to work collaboratively with partners. I don't think one company can do everything on their own and I think we need to just acknowledge that and work collaboratively together. When we talk about data and technology like we do in this session, I think working with Open standards, uh, open data protocols uh, will really allow us to collaborate really well together and and solve some of these huge challenges. I think the private sector has already set the pace. Yesterday's CEO workshop, we heard about some global companies and also Australian companies with very strong targets that they've imposed on their own businesses, whether it's in this decarbonisation and really business rules around that. So I think um, Roads Australia, this organisation provides a great conduit to actually have those discussions and maybe industry sharing with government about how they've done that and implemented that because it's a material monetary impact on their business. I think government's really got a role to understand where they can make a difference um, what is their actual carbon footprint now? I think maybe some pockets of government understand that, but there's so much data, uh, again, in, available to them already as they've moved to the cloud to be able to make those decisions and really target. I think we all have a responsibility from government for setting the standard, but also as individuals and companies. We should also select our sustainable development goals. We should follow those. We should have net zero uh, targets for our own companies. I think we all have responsibilities. I think also Australia has uh, the potential to become a hydrogen powerhouse uh, in the outback, producing hydrogen from solar uh, to uh, fuel trucks uh, driving across the country. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for rural areas as well. Simon expanded upon ensuring the decarbonisation of the transport sector and the transmission to electric vehicles is conducted in an equitable manner, something which will also require collaboration and well-considered policy settings. One of the the biggest problems with in terms of demographics and maybe the less affluent uh, areas is often that they're really poorly served by public transport. And by ensuring that you enable these technologies in those locations, you can then provide them, those communities, with a fairer share of, of means of getting around the city. There is two schools of thought for that there's going to end up being a two-tier system. Those who have the benefit of off-street parking and off-street charging are being able to charge at home, and those that will only ever be able to uh, charge their cars on a public charging network. So you, you do need to ensure you've got infrastructure installed and it's fairly priced for those people who don't necessarily have access to off-street charging. But providing charges apartment blocks is going to be really key and building regulations, introducing the concept of passive and active charging in new developments is really important. The panel discussed how the normalisation of electric vehicles 
will create new challenges for industries with an interest in the transport sector, including manufacturing and resources. I think there'll be a consolidation um, and a huge amount of movement in the EV um, marketplace. I think it's very difficult to predict uh, exactly what's happening and which direction it's going to go. China uh, rapidly becoming um, one of the world's leading well, EV uh, uh, OEMs, auto manufacturers. Um, and um, it's, it's difficult to see exactly how that's going to progress uh, in the future. Less cars on the road is going to be beneficial to all, um, but there's going to be a huge amount of change in the auto OEM space. And we're going to see different business models come out. Uh, they're going to be really interesting in terms of those ownership models as well. We're still going to need cars, though, in Australia. We have a huge, huge country to cover, and I think we, we will need cars here for, for a long, long time. They will change to be an electric vehicle, uh, but I don't think the cars are going to reduce dramatically anytime soon in Australia. It will change the type of car we're driving. What we've seen in the automated vehicle um, broader technology is sort of the winding back of some of the traditional OEMs into the fully driverless and drawing higher into the driver assistance, you know, because they can meet their safety obligation. They still have their relationship with their customer and they're offering maybe a service instead of the um, person privately owning the vehicle. They rent it or lease it off of them and they offer new car turnover you know so i think that the oem industry has been looking at this pretty hard and uh, particularly in the australian market i think personal ownership or or a personal vehicle is probably going to be around um, with much more safety features i hope um, to be able to make sure using it is going to be much safer on our network i think we we need to set an emission standard which we've done here in australia now uh we're working on it to finalize that strategy but Without having set a, a fuel standard or emission standard in Australia, we're not going to get an electric cars to this country. Uh, so not that is changing. So that could sort out some of the, the supply and demand issues that we're having. While a complex challenge, panellists highlighted the importance of taking progressive steps towards a decarbonised transport sector. It's a social responsibility. I mean, we we own this, well, we don't own this planet. We're renting it for the people that follow us. So it's... Um, you know, if, if if that's really the pointed vision, it's around making a decision that we're here for a very short time in the life of this planet and anything that we contribute to making it better for the future, that's really important. It might sound, you know, very altruistic, but I think that's why this conversation is really yeah. resonating because we recognise that what we're doing now isn't sustainable and it isn't actually leaving a great legacy behind. And yeah, we want to sell more things and we want to, you know, be able to get people to move more and to use, you know, cloud more and build data centres to support that. But we need to have a social responsibility to make sure it doesn't do any harm to the environment and the next generation. Yeah, and knowing that 20% of the emissions come from our industry, yes, it's, uh, it's a good reason to, to focus on this. It's really taking that responsibility of, one, mapping where you're you know, contributing and what you can do about it. It's really having a um, a base case that's equitable for everybody. You want companies to innovate, but you want to make sure that they're being measured on the same thing um, and and how you put innovation into into that and not stifle that. So that's really uh, it's a big challenge around what are the what are the key measurements and how are they how are they reported and how are they tracked and then how are they reported back to politicians and others so that mm. they care about that as well. So I think that that's a huge shift. And the other thing I'd say is 
um, we need to track it down to the source of the energy. So you might have the cleanest vehicle, but if it's charged by the dirtiest electricity, you're into, you know, you're still not going to get that benefit. So it's up to say all of us to, um, you know, not everybody's going to build wind farms everywhere, but maybe get into that understanding where you can source renewable energy for, for your vehicles and other things. So that information's out there and those companies are out there. The panel was also questioned on how the transport sector would balance climate considerations with the importance of transport infrastructure and the economic benefits traditionally associated with major projects. The stimulus economy is about creating jobs and trying to give some confidence to um, the people that vote for them um, on, you know, the fact that they'll invest in creating jobs and keeping their jobs. So I think we just need to be more open with our successes and, and innovations and, you know, Roads Australia with its access to that political level has got really great opportunity to showcase the great work of um, the association. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not convinced that mutually exclusive, I think we can and we are rapidly moving towards, you know, th- th- there is still a need for infrastructure out there, but doing that in a responsible um, low carbon way. I think we're all aggressively trying to get to that point. Autonomous vehicles are expected by many to form the future of transport, but this will not come without challenges in uptake and implementation. Although there's lots of barriers at the moment, um, you know, going towards level four autonomy, and that's some of the uh, challenges that we have in the Modi project as well. For example, in, in Netherlands, uh, between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., you can drive in the shoulder. Uh, but not other parts of the day, but the white stripe doesn't move, right? So an autonomous vehicle gets quite confused, you know, when, when it can drive in the shoulder or not. Uh, and the same with, with roadworks. Uh, so on a Monday, there's no roadwork. And Tuesday, there is a guy standing there and there's lots of uh, cones and all that sort of stuff. So that what we need for to support this is really um, detailed, uh, digitized messaging uh, that are up to date constantly to make these vehicles aware of what's happening on the road and what they can do on the road. So I think that is one of the challenging. There's a lot of standard work happening in this space to to set the the messaging and the standards for this, but still this um, it has to be dynamic and it has to be very detailed. The the messaging going into the vehicles. Most of the big companies that are building this, um, these autonomous solutions are, are using lots of data. They all use lots of data and they need to understand exactly where their vehicle is all the time. So it is very data hungry and they're always reiterating or recalibrating their solutions. So I think it's um, the big blocks for Australia are, you know, we need to create the industry here and we create the use cases. Mining's being, you know, the forerunner globally and Australia is one of the leaders in that. The next probably areas are ports and airports where you've got these very controlled environments that you can actually tell people where they can't drive and where they can drive. It's not for everyone everywhere, um, but there are some amazing use cases that we can start um, deploying and there's great Australian expertise that can do that as well. Cruise Automation has just announced that they're running autonomous taxi services in San Francisco 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Waymo's doing the same sort of things yeah. in um, Phoenix, Arizona, which if you think about Australian arid countries and, you know, sparse populations. So those taxi type 
services, there is a big shift in, you know, where that service is going to be useful to airports and, you know, from airports and around um, major events. And we've got the Commonwealth Games in um, Melbourne. That's probably too soon. But the Olympic Games in Queensland, I think we're going to see something quite different um, uh, as the way people will move across those regional cities for those games. And that's where we'll end this edition of The Hub. While by no means an exhaustive account of the panel's insightful discussion, this podcast highlights the importance of working towards a decarbonised sector through collaboration between government and industry, and importantly, the opportunities that exist to drive sustainable change. Over the coming months, we will bring you more of our Transport Summit summaries, alongside some exciting industry discussions. So please keep an eye out in the RA Insider for their release. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Mm -hmm.